You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. I want to start off by reading the text this morning. It's a passage that's familiar to many of us. Jesus says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Uh, When Jesus spoke these words, it was to a Jewish audience 2,000 years ago. A little bit different than 21st century America. And this Jewish audience would have been under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was particularly oppressive, especially depending on which district you lived in, which kind of governor was over you. We have clues from uh, the New Testament, from the Gospels, that uh, the, the, the Jewish people lived under a particularly oppressive and aggressive regime. Meaning at times they would be physically abused, verbally assaulted, they would be taxed heavily, things would be taken from them, and they would be asked, there's a kind of a deal, if you're uh, oppressed by the Roman Empire, there's this agreement that if a Roman soldier asked you to carry their gear, you had to do so for a mile. Um, But you weren't obligated after that to do anything else. Uh, So the Jewish people that heard these words from Jesus would have understood perfectly who Jesus was referring to, who the enemy was. And Jesus was kind of giving a counter-narrative to kind of popular culture at that time. They were, the Jewish people were an oppressed people. They'd been oppressed for centuries from different empires and they were angry and they were bitter and they were hopeless and they were hoping and praying and longing for a leader that would rise up and like teach them Kung Fu. That would teach them how to fight back and overthrow uh, the oppressing empire with violence, much like David, this great leader in their past. So the Jewish people were hoping and longing for a Messiah that would be a great military leader to teach them how to fight. And Jesus comes in and they're saying, is Jesus this Messiah? And he says, well, let me tell you how I interpret this situation. I want you to act differently. I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to to go the extra mile. When someone asks for your coat, give them your shirt. And they would have been frustrated to say the least. But what Jesus is kind of getting at here is a little bit of psychological warfare. Like it's holy psychological warfare. It's loving psychological warfare. But what Jesus is saying is, hey, the Roman Empire does have the power to do all these things to you. They can beat you. They can kill you. They can tax you. And you can't do anything about it right now. But what they don't have the authority to do or the power to do is to get inside your mind and to break you and to make you bitter and angry and violent yourselves and create infighting. They don't have the power to do that. They do have the power to do these things but they don't have the power to make you a hateful, bitter, small person. And a way to navigate that tendency towards violence or bitterness is this, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. Don't give them that power in your life as well. So when Jesus was speaking to first century 
Jewish people, and he said, love your enemies. They had a pretty clear idea of who Jesus meant in that comment. Now fast forward 2,000 years till now, and we're in 21st century America. And in in the Jewish world, they were uh, oppressed by an empire. In our context, in this room, we are the empire. We're Americans. We are, so far, in, in, in power. We are in empire. And when Jesus says to us, love your enemies, for me the question is, well, enemies, who is that? It's kind of a strong word. Um, and I, I, I'm curious, show, you can show your hands, but you don't have to, but like when you, when you hear the, the question, who is my enemy, does someone come to mind for you? Who, who in the room has someone they would call an enemy? Show of hands. A handful, yeah. And there's a lot of context there. I actually kind of want to hear your stories over a beer. Because, like, that's, that's interesting. Who is your enemy? Now, if you have military experience or you have, like, an abusive a family background or you have a bitter divorce, like, there's, there are certain situations where it might be clear this person is my enemy. They're out to get me and I'm out to get them and I wake up and I'm ready to, you know, like, I'm ready to fight. But for most of us in the room, I think, well, based on a show of hands anyway, the term enemy is almost, like, pretty intense, pretty extreme. Now, some of the best movies in the world have a clear-cut hero and enemy, right? You have, like... Harry and Voldemort. You have Frodo and Sauron. You have Neo and Agent Smith. Uh, you have Chris Pratt and you have the dinosaurs, right? Like the best movies, at least my favorite movies, have a clear-cut hero and villain, an enemy. But in a lot of times in, in 21st century America, in my mind, in my opinion, the term enemy is almost too strong to label to someone. So when Jesus says to love your enemy, it can be kind of hard to think about that. So I want to rephrase the, the question or the, the, the term a little bit and say, rather than who is my enemy, to say, who is someone that I really struggle loving? Who is someone that I find it really difficult to love? And if I ask that question, who in, you, who in here has someone uh, in their life, when I say, do you have someone that's difficult to love? Almost all of us raise our hands. There's somebody. It could be our, our mother-in-law. It's, it's not my mother-in-law. She's great. It might be yours. That's, that's between you and her. Uh, it might be Ricky down the street. It might be the neighbor that smokes weed three houses down. You're like, man, it stinks. It might be uh, a cranky coworker. It might be a, like, you might have someone that this person's really challenging to love. And that's where I want to dig in because that's where I think we can find some common ground here. Someone that's difficult to love. And the question I would ask about that, what is it about that person that makes it difficult for you to love them? What is it about that person that makes it difficult for you to love them? And then that follow-up question is, and what does that say about you? How does that reflect something in you that might be an insecurity or a wound or a lack of patience in a certain area? And some of you guys might immediately become defensive. Tommy, you don't know this person. They're this, 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 this. Okay, that's fine. I don't, I don't know that person. You're right. And I don't know what your story about them is. And honestly, like, it's not, that's not that important right now, right here in this room. What's important is, what is it about them that, that makes them difficult for you to love? And what does that say about you? Now, Jesus said earlier in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, I'd say, uh, judge not lest you be judged, right? And he goes on to say, before you complain about the speck in the other person's eye, first examine the plank in your own. And what he's saying is it's easy for us to cast judgment and criticism on other people without recognizing that it's our, some of our own biases or our own work to do uh, first. What does 
who you find difficult to love say about you. There's a there's also something vicious that it's not just people that we know are difficult to love, but sometimes there's people in our life that we're not even conscious of are difficult to love, and, and, we, and we treat them differently or treat them without love without even knowing it. It's like an unconscious bias. I'll give one example. I have a friend named Jim uh, who's been in ministry for decades, and a few decades back, he was hired at a church in Texas, and about a few months into being uh, on staff at that church, his boss, the lead pastor, came and put him aside and said, Jim, what do you have against Frank? Like, what has Frank done to you? He's like, what do you mean? He said, well, normally you're a very lively, talkative, engaging, warm person. But anytime Frank walks in the room, you change, you shift, you shut down. I can see your body leaning away from Frank. So I'm asking you, what has Frank done to you? And Jim was like shocked because he had no idea that he was doing it. And Frank had done nothing to him. And he had to spend some time thinking and reflecting on it. What he realized is that Frank was a tall, bald guy. Now, Jim didn't have anything against bald people. I don't either. It's fine. But in Jim's past, his father was tall and bald, and his father was physically abusive to him. And so anytime someone walked in the room that reminded him of his father, Jim clenched up unconsciously. He wasn't even where he was doing it, but it affected how he treated people like that. In the situation, Frank... The boss caught it, called it out, and it was an opportunity for Jim to, to grow an awareness of how his subconscious bias was affecting how he treated other people. In this instance, tall, bald people. Carl Jung, a great psychologist, he says this. He says, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will direct our life and we will call it fate. Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. And for some of us, for me, the word enemy is a little bit too strong. But I can say, who are people that are hard for me to love? Okay, I can recognize that. And then the even deeper question is, who are people that are hard for me to love and I'm not even aware of it? How do I recognize that? And so this morning, I want to walk us through a handful of cognitive biases. Uh, And basically, that just means ways that our brains work on autopilot that impact how we show up in a room and how we show up in relationship. Now, cognitive biases, there's like dozens of them. I'm just going to give us six of them and kind of walk through them. These are things that could impact how we treat other people without us even knowing it. Now, the first one I want to talk about is confirmation bias, and that is the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms or supports one's prior beliefs or values. This is my favorite tool in a marriage, confirmation bias. I can recall with clarity all the ways in which I'm right, and I have completely blocked out all the ways in which I'm wrong. (laughs) This is a great tool in marriage. Confirmation bias is our tendency to look at, to recognize, to notice, and remember information that confirms what we already think or believe. Now, how that shows up in relationship with other people is if we have certain stereotypes about a certain gender or race or sexual orientation or whatever category you want to give, if we have a certain prejudice or preconceived notion about that person and they give us any evidence that confirms that suspicion, we immediately latch onto that and we attach it to them. It's confirmation bias. We're looking for evidence to prove our point, and once it's proven, we're good to go. We can justify our mistreatment of someone else. So that's confirmation bias. The next one is implicit bias. It's the unconscious attitudes or stereotypes that can influence our judgments and behavior, even if we consciously reject them. Now, in the story of Jim, if I went up to Jim in that story and said, Jim, do you have a beef with bald people? Consciously, no. Of course not. That'd be ridiculous. 
but subconsciously, implicitly, internally, without him even knowing it, he had this reaction against this guy that reminded him of his dad. That's an implicit bias where we consciously reject racism, but internally we still have racist tendencies. Those are hard to recognize and see and discover. There's plenty of tests online where you can kind of take a test and it can raise awareness on, on biases. That's one way to do that. Um, but part of it's just being self-aware, noticing when you clinch up, when you lean away, uh, when you shut down, learning to notice that and to say, what's going on inside of me that's, that's causing this reaction? So implicit bias, even though I consciously reject racism, internally I still may have racist tendencies. Uh, even though I consciously reject being prejudiced against bald people, internally it reminds me of an abusive father, right? Implicit bias. All right, the halo effect. That's when we let our overall impression of a person influence our judgments about their specific traits or ability. I'll say it in a different way. If someone is charming and attractive, we might think they're also smart. If someone speaks with a certain accent, we might think they're not as smart. And I love being, I was talking about this in Sunday school, I love being in rooms where like, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, one of my own prejudice, but I'm shocked when I'm, I'm proven wrong. Um, but the halo effect is when we, we notice maybe it's the way a person dresses, the way they speak, something about them, and then we sum up every other part of who they are immediately in our heads. Like for me, when I hear a British person speak, I automatically think they're right. Like they're smarter, I think they're smarter than me. I think what they're saying is probably factually correct. They can take my money. Uh, I think British people are just smarter. That's a halo effect. Um, all right. Next, in-group bias, when we favor members of our own group over outsiders. And I, I think maybe this is a great one-sentence definition of church. When we favor members of our own group over outsiders, it's something that's just natural and primitive in us as humans to do this, but it's important to recognize that. That there's times when we just give preferential treatment to people that are like us. Uh, the fifth one, just world bias. It's the belief that everyone starts off on the same foot and that if anything bad's happening to someone, it's because they deserved it. And if anything good's happening to someone, it's because they've earned it. And we're not factoring in background context and how so many people have so many different experiences than us. Now, we are a room full, full of primarily white, middle class to affluent people. We've had a pretty good run at it. And not only we have hardships, I'm not trying to dismiss that. But there's times when us and people in that demographic can really think, oh, everyone has it just like I do. And they have the same opportunities and the same experiences that I might have had growing up. And that's simply not true. And when we treat other people's behaviors as if uh, they have the same opportunities, like it, it, we, we, we misfire. We, we get it wrong. We treat people differently. So that is just world bias. Believing that people generally get what they deserve in life and that bad things happen to people because they've done something wrong or they've made poor choices. It can lead us to blame victims of injustice and misfortune and to treat them unfairly. We judge people based on our past experience and upbringing, not considering that they may have had a completely different experience and context. And then the last one is anchoring bias, and that is when we rely too heavily on the first piece of information we receive and use it as a reference point for all subsequent information. And that's just first impression bias. Uh, the first impression someone makes of us, we use as the foundation for which we understand all of their behavior and interactions after that. Uh, and that could be super unfair if that person is having a bad day, if they are in a rough environment, in a rough situation. Like, it, it, we form up this, this idea really quickly without giving the full picture. Now, these are just a handful, like you know, six cognitive biases. There's dozens of them. And what I want to say, if you think you have, we all have all of them, I just said. You, you all do it. I do it too, right? Uh, it's perfectly human 
to, to have these biases because our brains want to lump people and environments and situations and experiences into categories. We, we, we want to simplify things as much as possible in our brains. These people belong with this tribe or this uh, people group and, and this type of culture. Like we, we want to simplify things in our brain because we have so much input coming in all the time. So our brain's constantly trying to fit things into categories just to make it all work together. That's natural, that's human. And some of us grew up in, in certain environments. The, env- the, the environment of growing up at Houghton High School, uh, for me, and growing up in Houghton, is a different experience than my kids are having growing up in, in Shreveport at, at Catamill uh, Magnet in a second, but the Eden Gardens, all that kind of stuff. It's a completely different experience. Um, our brains are, are wired to lump things into categories, but also how we grow up can, can shape and influence how our brain does this, these categorizations. But when we lump people into categories, it prevents us from seeing people the way that Jesus saw them, which is individuals. And one of the most compelling things about the Gospels to me is that Jesus is constantly interrupted by individuals that belong to people groups that normally wouldn't interact with Jesus. And every time in the Gospels anyway, Jesus stops and he engages and he shows the people around him, hey, this person is a human as well. And all your preconceived biases about how they think and live and what their morals and values are, I'm about to turn them on their head as I show you how this person is also a part of the kingdom of God. Jesus challenges us to see people as individuals and to see them with compassion and curiosity. He challenges us to notice when we want to withhold love and generosity from others. And I love what he says here in this passage in Luke. He says, if you love people that love you, how are you any different? If you're generous to people that you know will repay you, how are you any different than anyone else? I'm pushing you to be holy, to be set apart, to, to live life in a different way that, that can works and fights against your human inclinations of prejudice and stereotype and bias. I'm urging you to fight against that and to love people that are hard to love, that are challenging to love, even people that wish you ill, that might do negative things against you. I'm pushing you to live lightly and freely and generously and curiously and to love even those challenging people. So I want to close with a few questions. The first question is for you is, who do you find most challenging to love? It could be an individual person or individual persons. It could be a demographic or a people group. Some of you, the, the, the immediate gut level response might be, the person I find most difficult to love is myself. And that's a really honest answer. And that might be a large portion of us in this room, even if we don't realize it, that we have a hard time fully and truly loving ourselves the way that God loves us. And I want to challenge you because if that's the case, that impacts how you show up in a relationship with other people. If you feel a giant sense of shame about your life or a certain aspect of your life, you in turn often will become a shaming person. If you feel a deep sense of bitterness and anger about a certain situation or event in your life, that'll often show up as, an, and you'll be an angry and bitter person towards other people. How we love ourselves is how we love other people. So if the person you find most difficult to love is yourself, I encourage you to be really curious about that, um, to, to, to pray, meditate if that, if that helps, to, to search the scriptures, to understand that God doesn't have that opinion of you. 
If you need to go to therapy, go to therapy and work on that as well. Get deep into the roots of what's going on there because how you love yourself is how you will love other people. If it's not yourself or it's not just yourself and it's other people as well that you find challenging to love and you kind of keep going down this list here, right? What is it about them that I find challenging? What does that reveal about me, about my insecurities, about my lack of patience, about my own sense of shame or pain or woundedness? And then lastly, what would it look like to act differently in those relationships? If you notice that when a certain person enters the room that you shut down or you lean back, you you try to create some physical or emotional distance, what would it look like to intentionally repent, to change that behavior and say, this time I'm going to try leaning in. I'm going to try to understand more and be curious. What would it look like to be generous with your time instead of withholding it? What would it look like to assume the best in a person rather than size them up immediately and fit them into a box and assume their motives? What would it look like to assume the best in them and to be curious and attentive to that individual? Jesus says this, if you just love the people that love you, you're like everyone else. But I want you to choose a different path to intentionally love those who are hard to love. I'm going to pray, and after I pray, I'm going to uh, sing a song by Damien Rice. He's a great artist. The song's beautiful. It's going to take me a few seconds to set up, so be patient with me. (laughs) But let's pray.